Scottish Nationalism and Empire, Colonists or Colonised? Hello and welcome to the Unsettling Knowledge podcast. In today's episode, we're going to look at an issue that's front and centre in Scottish politics, namely Scottish nationalism and conversations around independence. And today, we're going to look at these issues in light of the role played by empire, both figuratively and literally, in Scotland's national conversation about the Constitution. Some of the questions we hope to answer in today's episode include What does the dual British-Scottish identity mean for how Scotland views its own involvement in empire? Is it appropriate to use colonial metaphors when discussing the topic of independence when Scotland itself played such an instrumental role in building and governing the British Empire? What role did individuals and market forces play in how modern Scotland emerged from the imperial era and industrial revolution? And many, many more questions besides those. Um, my name is Eden Simpson. I'm a master's student at Utrecht University and um, studying imperialism and the Scottish Labour Party's relationship with Scottish nationalism since devolution. devolution. Um, I'm an intern and production assistant to the Unsettling Knowledge podcast, and I am co-hosting today's episode alongside um, Ava Scalbrook. Thank you. So I work as a lecturer in cultural history at Utrecht University. I work on the history of Belgian colonialism and the missionary movement in the Congo, Central Africa. My work focuses on topics like governance, church-state relations, intercultural encounter, how this past is remembered and reused or not. And we're also joined by our amazing guests, Professor Nigel Leesk and Dr Ewan Gibbs, both from the University of Glasgow. Um, Ewan, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm a lecturer in Global Inequalities within Economic and Social History at the University of Glasgow. My research focuses on working labour, working class politics and protest, deindustrialisation, and increasingly also the history of energy and energy transitions. My research has tended to concentrate on 20th century Scotland. Um, I recently published a book, Coal Country, The Meaning and Memory of Deindustrialisation in Post-War Scotland, and I'm currently now completing a project on the connection between energy economies and Scottish nationalism. Yeah, hi, um, everyone. I'm uh, Nigel Leask. I'm Regis Chair of English Language and Literature. That's the, the full title, although I'm not really in the English Language Department at all. And I actually work mainly on Scottish Literature, so my title is a bit iffy, but there we go. Uh, um, not least because it was also a chair founded by Queen Victoria in 1862 at the height of the imperialist era with specifically imperialist uh, uh, aims to allow Scottish boys to get into the East India Company, the um, East India Company administration. Um, <laughs> so it's got really quite interesting connections to um, to, the, to the history of imperialism. But I'm really, a, I'm a literary uh, historian, a critic and cultural historian, I guess. My work's focused on the romantic, the long 18th century and the romantic period. I published a book in, in 1992 called British Romantic Writers and the East, uh, Anxieties of Empire, which was really one of the first attempts to look at romantic literature in relation to the British Empire and to imperial expansion um, and its impact on the metropolitan culture. Um, and that's been a big theme of my work uh, ever since. I worked for uh, 20 years or so in the English faculty in Cambridge about 2004. Although I'm born in Glasgow and I'm Scots, uh, I got kind of homesick in my mid-40s uh, and I moved back to the chair in Glasgow in 2004. Best move of my life. I brought my, came back with my family. I've been here in Glasgow since. Um, and one of the reasons was that I wanted to work more on Scottish literature and that wasn't so easy in Cambridge, although there was a lot of intellectual history on the Scottish Enlightenment in Cambridge and the whole Skinner School, 
uh, there wasn't much on Scottish writing at all. So it was good to come back to uh, a community of uh, scholars working in Scottish literature here. Um, and I became involved in the, the Burns uh, project in Glasgow, and I published a book in 1810, in, in 2010, sorry, uh, called Robert Burns and Pastoral um, uh, Poetry and Improvement in the late 18th century, which tried to look at Burns's poetry in relation to the socioeconomic uh, conditions of rural Scotland, the rural lowlands in that period. And more recently, I've, I've worked, I've moved more towards um, another interest is travel writing and empire and travel writing both domestically and colonially. And um, I've just, uh, my latest book is called uh, Stepping Westwards, Writing the Highland Tour, 1720 to 1813, which is a explores the literature of tra travel written about the Scottish Gaeltach in the long 18th century. Um, and I've also just been involved in co-curating an exhibition in Glasgow's Hunterian Art Gallery called Old Ways and New Roads, Travels in Scotland, 1720 to 1830. There's a book published by Berlin and was an, an online exhibition and a series of, of uh, um, linked events. So those are my, my kind of main, main, main research interests. I had no idea about the Queen Victoria East India Service role. We're actually going to be getting into that later on, don't you worry? So that's very exciting. Um, but yeah, thank you for your lovely introductions all. Um, and we're better to start than with the very foundation of the Union itself. So, 1707, uh, though there'd been a century of Union of the Crowns, we had the Union of the Parliaments, just in case any listeners were unaware of the rough chronology of the Act of Union. Um, but yeah, one of the biggest issues which pushed towards the Act of Union was the topic of empire, with a series of acts during the 17th century, meaning many Scots were excluded from the then English Empire, and another key driver being the Darien Scheme, and that scheme was a scheme from 1695, which was organised by the Company of Scotland, with the aim of founding a Scottish colony where Panama is today. Um, around 20% of Scotland then GDP went into this scheme. And well, unfortunately for 20% of Scotland's GDP and a good number of lives, the scheme failed due to tropical conditions and military resistance from the Spanish. The way that Darien is often interpreted, particularly by Robbie Burns, who got a shout out earlier on, he used the phrase that parcel of rogues who accepted the bribe of the union as you know, recompense almost for Darien's scheme. So I find it quite interesting that a lot of the time the way Darien is predicted, it's almost as if like it, it's presented. It's almost as if something was done to Scotland, as if some sort of injustice at the hands of the English for not supporting Darien was happening. And I was just wondering, is there anything problematic in that? Or is that something, because oh, it, it did lead to obviously like a lot of poverty, there's a lot of devastation in Scotland as a result of so much money just sinking. But um, is it right to view Darien through a lens of Scottish victimhood? What are your thoughts? Uh, uh, victimhood? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I do think that that Darien plays a the failure of Darien plays a really important role in the Act of Union or the Treaty of Union of 1707. Um, the the equivalent, which was the money that Queen Anne's government were going to pay to the, the the shareholders had lost out in Darien, was an enormous incentive. Although we shouldn't forget that the um, the Act of Union was itself massively unpopular uh, in Scotland. There were riots in all the Scottish cities and the benefits were very long in coming. Um, I think Scotland had been involved in, I mean, I think as uh, you kindly put my uh, review of Divine's book, Scotland's Empire, on the reading list. And uh, as Divine shows in that book, Scotland's empire goes way back before Darien, doesn't it? And, um, you know, the Scots were, although the Scots, the Navigation Acts barred the Scots from trading with England's colonies, Scottish network, associational networking, etc., had, uh, had allowed a lot of quite a lot of capital to be made from uh, you know trading through England's colonies. Um, there's another given you're in Utrecht. There's an also interesting connect, connection with the Netherlands, 
that says Scots are very active in the, the Dutch Empire as well. Um, so David Worthington's recent work shows that um, a lot of Highland uh, 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 people like Macintosh at Borlem, Highland clan chiefs, were uh, running plantations in Suriname. And uh, there was a direct trade between the Netherlands and Scotland, which actually bypassed England in the period, during the Stuart period. Um, so I don't think it's about victimhood. I think um, it was a key indicator for the act of union. I don't think, I think there's a mistake. We tend to see maybe a sort of Whiggish interpretation of history has made us think about modern Scottish history as starting in 1707. And I think we're not, one needs to go a bit earlier. One needs to go back into the 17th century to look at the preconditions, uh, to think about the, the, the role of Stuart Scotland and what was happening uh, in that period. And I don't think, I think you'll find the roots of the Enlightenment in the 17th century, not in the Act of Union with England in 1707. Um, Ewan, I was wondering what your thoughts, what does Darien say about Scottish imperialism, Scottish nationalism? What, what are your thoughts on the Darien scheme, just very broadly? I mean, we could start by, we could start by saying Darien was the most ill-fated Scottish adventure in South America before the 1978 World Cup. And perhaps, <laughs> you know, a similar extent of disappointment and moral devastation um, with the Scottish nation. I, I think that it perhaps does entrench a conclusion among certain sections of Scotland's mercantile elite in particular that Scotland isn't going to manage to be an independent imperial power and that encourages the Union. And, and you know, as we've noted, there were also other encouragements to the Union which, which were partly coercive in nature. I don't think that makes Scotland a victim. I think that means that, you know, certain sections of the elite benefited from that rational calculation. I think that David's also right to emphasise that Scottish capitalism, as well as colonialism, predates the Union. And I think that's that's quite an important um, observation for us to have when we're considering the roots of the Enlightenment and ultimately industrialisation and major social changes that follow well after the Act of the Union, but are really important to modern Scotland. There is one interpretation of Darien that, you know, Scotland was oppressed or mistreated or not given a fair shot at it, essentially. But I think that increasingly, particularly in the context of the growing discussion about Scotland's role in slavery, there's actually a growing awareness that Scotland played in some ways a relatively autonomous role in, in imperialism. And I think that's important. I guess you can see it. I, I think... I think... I think it's important to have a comparative view too. If you look at you know Scotland's role in relation to other smaller European nations like the Netherlands or Denmark, you know both those countries are developing slave plant colonies in the Caribbean and the West in the same period. So I don't think it's anything unusual, you know. Yeah, no, I mean it, it's. I think a lot of the time, I think it's a slightly older view of it. Or like you said, it's the Whiggish view earlier on, Nigel, which sees Darien in, in this prison, but. Um, yeah, there's there's such a well, I wouldn't say rich, but there's such a, a layered history. There's a, a lot of history. That's probably a better word for it. A lot of history oh. of Scottish involvement earlier on. I mean, I was doing some very very last minutes sort of fact researching and stat collecting earlier on for today's episode, and I found out that up until I think it was 1787, Robbie Burns himself was working um, in the Caribbean on a plantation, apparently, which I saw just then. I wasn't really aware of that. That was something I think I skirted over. Well, he never actually got there. He he, he never got to the, he yeah. never made it to the Caribbean, but you're right. He did plan to go, but he didn't actually go, <laughs> uh, which is in itself an interesting development. Uh, and I think, um, well, he got a better, I mean, it was a, you know, it raises all sorts of questions for, for admirers of Burns, I think, the fact that he, he was, he was, he was planning to go. I don't think he, he was down on his luck. I don't think he had any, he didn't have many alternatives. It was, 
it was a he was it was probably linked to a Masonic land network that he was offered this employment on a Negro plantation in in Port Antonio in Jamaica, um, and it was relatively lucrative, I guess. But uh, the health risks were very high. It was a, a pretty awful. It was much, of course much worse for the enslaved Africans, um, but European slave drivers had a very short life expectancy. It wasn't a choice you made. He, he took he took lightly. So he he as what basically happens is the first the second edition of his poems is brought out in Edinburgh. He goes to Edinburgh to bring out to oversee a second edition of his poems. And he raises quite a lot of money from that, about £700, which is quite a lot in the period, that bails him out from the problems he's suffering through the farming, the, the failure of his farm, and other personal problems like his you know, pregnancy of his partner, Jean Armour, etc., etc. So he never, he actually never goes to... Um... But, you know, I think it's Stephen Mullen, who's our colleague, who's um, Ewan's colleague in, in, in the history, who he says that... Uh, I've got, I just noted it down because I love it. It's a great quote. He says that... Um, the uh, there are about it's estimated there are about seventeen thousand Scots who did who were in, who did go to the Caribbean to work in the way that Robbie Burns did. So it's kind of uh, ironic that uh, we we remember the one who didn't, <laughs> but we forget the, the seventeen thousand who did. <laughs> I think what's interesting about the Burns story as well is it punctuals the sense that you know Scottish involvement in this these colonial enterprises is purely an elite story. Like you know a lot of these seventeen thousand men are not elite or relatively well educated but also relatively impoverished men like Burns who perceive an opportunity in in, in partaking in, in the slave economy. I mean, one that carries great risks, but you have to say cumulatively does contribute though, surely, to, to Scotland's later economic takeoff and, and development. So even though individually a lot of people must have suffered through that and a lot of them died in those trips. The wealth that was created and the, the cultures of business that were created through those through those activities seem very significant. I think, I don't know if you agree, Ewan, but I think Divine, because, you know, you're, um, on the economic terms, it shows that, or he argues at least, that Scotland has a higher dependence on colonial capital income for for developing its economic takeoff, as it were, than England does in the same period. I mean, do you, do you agree with that? I think that, that seems to be the case, logically. I mean, Scotland takes off as well, it's worth noting, on a shorter, quicker trajectory than England over the late 18th and early 19th century. So, you know, the common, the, 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 the kind of common agreement now in the Industrial Revolution scholarship would be that the Industrial Revolution across Britain was a longer, slower process than traditional interpretations. But actually in Scotland, especially when it comes to the quite rapid development of textiles and then heavy industries over the late 18th and early 19th century, you have a, a process which more corresponds to that traditional perspective than links to, col- links to um, colonial wealth seem to be part of that process. I mean, who was, you know, where was that cotton coming from is obviously very, very important. And then the Scottish heavy industries, particularly locomotive manufacturing in Glasgow, but also shipbuilding are also quite heavily linked to imperial trade. But I was interested in in what was said about Robert Burns and the pregnancy and the sort of, you know, you know, selling his poems, trying to sell his poems, family issues. I mean, of course, the the economic uh, part is a very important part of this history. But how, you know, especially when we're trying to undermine Whiggish histories, how important is it to sort of 
you know, look into the personal aspects and the contingency of these things? How would you sort of try to bring those two together? Well, I think that's, you know, I think that maybe it's a disciplinary distinction. I guess Ewan's approach is going to be more, and as an economic historian, is going to be more on the, you know, on those aspects. And because I'm working more on literature, I'm going to be more concerned with the subjective, the constructions of self-food, uh, questions of, uh, you know, of gender, of um, class orientation, of education, of self-fashioning in a, in a in the social media in which Burns found himself. But my book really tried to do that. I tried to look at Burns's uh, development. You know, he's he's constructed by the Romantics as the kind of primordial genius. You know, he's a he's described as a, as a heaven-taught plowman. You know, in the sense that he's got no. Um, this is a, the epitome of romantic genius. He has no. This is just pure the descent of of genius, of poetic genius on on an unlettered man, which is a myth. And it was a myth that he played because he was very well educated. Although he didn't go to college, his father hired a tutor for him. His father was a, um, a tenant farmer in Ayrshire who came from the northeast of Scotland, had been a gardener. He'd been involved in laying out the, the um, formal landscaping, the meadows in Edinburgh. Uh, so he was basically involved in the kind of, you know, um, l landscape design kind of trade, as it were, before he moved to. Uh, so I think there's an issue. I think we tend to very easily impose our own map of class, of social class, onto the earlier period, on the 18th century. Uh, it's true that Burns, Burns um, was a peasant in the sense that a peasant was defined as somebody who worked on the land, but he also employed laborers. He was a, he was a tenant farmer who employed six laborers uh, on the field. And occasionally he would take the plow, but he also had a team of, of workers on, uh, under, his, under his command, as it were. So he's a kind of a tenant farmer in this period in rural Scotland, he's the kind of middle, the middle, middling sort. Which isn't to say my my colleague Jerry or others like to say it proves he's bourgeois, which I don't think is really I think is another anachronistic description. But I think we need to think about problematize the whole class, the the familiar nineteenth twentieth century class structure, and thinking about somebody like Burns. Um, and I think it's interesting in terms of the colonial aspect of our subject today that it's very interesting that Burns applies when he's desperate he applies to go to the Caribbean, to the West Indies. Because he couldn't, he didn't have the social capital to try, aim for the East Indies, uh, and there's a huge out migrate out out um, migration is the wrong word, but professional migration of Scots to both uh, East and West Indies in the period. More affluent and well connected members of the gentry, the small gentry, tend to go to the East Indies, whereas poorer uh, middle class um, and uh, and working class people, labouring class people, tend to get to the West Indies. Partly because it's a much more risky regime. Uh, the, the, the money involved. It's a much harder uh, uh, laboring, you know, struggle to, to raise the money. You could get a lucky windfall in East in India, uh, as many of Scott's nabobs did. If you got lucky, not all of them did. Many of them died. But if you got lucky, you could make a hell of a lot of money and come home rich. Uh, it was much harder in uh, in the Caribbean. These people are a bit different, though, from colonizers in places like Canada or New Zealand or Australia, uh, the so-called settler colonies. Because uh, as Karras, Alan Karras argues in his book on Scotland, which I'm sure you're aware of, these are sojourners. Really. These are folk who are going out with not with intention of spending their lives there, but they're going out to make money and to come back. Um, and in working in the slave economy in the case of the Caribbean and in forms of other extractive um, economic activity in, in, in India and the East Indies. Uh, and it's interesting that Burns's sons both became officers in the Indian army. So... His success as a poet enabled him to, to move up that rung of patronage, of colonial patronage. To his, it was after he died, but his widow, Jean, Jean Armour, ensured through her connections with the Earl, the, the, the Countess of Loudoun, to the Scottish aristocracy, got the two sons 
commissions in the, in the Indian Army and moved them into a secure upper middle class. Uh, they both, I mean, it's weird. They both grew big military mustaches and retired to, you know, Southampton or, you know, somewhere in, you know, some posh resort in the south of England. So that wasn't an option that was open to the previous generation. It was Robbie Burns had to go with the Caribbean. His sons could, could, could aspire to India. So I think that's kind of interesting. Um, it's a bit shocking because it's an area of Burns, Burns's life that's completely airbrushed out of the popular history because no one in Scotland wants to be reminded of his connections with the colonial world. You and you have something to say, sorry? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I'd start by saying I'm an oral historian and I'm heavily invested in understanding how people explain their own lives, their own experiences and, and the interactions between their economic decisions and activities and social identities and, and cultural norms. We don't, obviously, we don't have the capacity to put a tape recorder in front of people who are making those sorts of decisions in the, the 18th and 19th century. But I think what one way that is useful is we can, alongside telling the structural story of flows of capital, we can also try and, to, try and reconstruct the social world of different groupings in Scotland who made decisions and interactions with the colonial economy. I think the biographical details, for instance, of um, those not necessarily affluent, but middling sort educated men who chose to go to the Caribbean are very, very valuable in that respect. But I'd like to make the point that these connections go on into the 20th century, that actually colonial links are important parts of Scotland's economy and Scotland's industrial economy in particular uh, for a long time. One example of that is at the Scottish Business Archives at Glasgow University, there's records from the Sierra Leone Development Corporation, which was was um, principally staffed and managed and owned by Bairds, who are uh, an iron and steel company from Lanarkshire and Ayrshire. And it's really interesting reading letters about these developments in Sierra Leone, dispatches from some of the managers that went out there from, from Scotland to, to oversee the development of this large iron mine, the construction of a railway and a port jetty. They are, some of the key decisions about this company are being made in Lugar and Ayrshire and Hamilton and Lanarkshire are not being made in London. And I think that's really, really important for how we imagine colonialism. And even into the second half of the 20th century, um, skilled workers or white-collar workers that work for Scottish industrial farms may be relocated towards Zimbabwe or South Africa or Burma or India or other places that have colonial connections in history. So I, I think it's quite important that we don't silo that off as something that happened in the 18th or 19th centuries, that actually they remain important for a long, long time after that. I think the Scottish presence in Hong Kong is another example of that as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's really interesting. It's really important to remind to remind us all that that is a, an ongoing situation. It's not we're not just talking about an 18th century history. Um, in my own my own talk, talk, referring to my own experience, so in my own my own you know upbringing in a, a middle class privileged Scottish family is due to the fact that my grandfather Jimmy Leask was the son of a small farmer, a ten acre farmer in Stennis and Orkney, and he got a job in India in Madras. Uh, working in the banking sector, you know, as a clerk, and he worked his way up, and he launched the family into the middle class. When he came back to, he retired to St Andrews, interestingly, and to play golf, <laughs> of course. And he was a member of the Masonic Lodge, local Masonic Lodge. And you know, my dad was brought up in the middle class. And that's that's that was it. 
but he was coming from a peasant farming background in Orkney, um, and he, you know, it was a, it was the empire, the colonial trajectory, that, and I think that's a very probably a very typical story for a lot of people in the Scottish middle class. Very interesting. I quite like this actually. This focus we've kind of coalesced around of. Um you know, this poverty or kind of like, not necessarily poverty, but being of the middling sort, even beyond the 18th century, uh, being this incentive, this thing that pushes people from Scotland out of Scotland and into this this new imperial project. Well, not new necessarily, because obviously we've already established it had longer roots than just 1707, but this, this growing and ever-expanding imperial network. But I think Ava actually had a very interesting question on a, not Robbie Burns, but another very prominent Scot who, I think is a bit more familiar um, in the popular mind associated with things such as empire, if you'd like to ask away, Ava. Just to pick up on the question that was asked about, you know, social mobility and transnational connections, when looking at Scottish imperialism, the figure that comes to mind is Dr. Livingston. Um, but again, here, the question of can we equate empire and mission in this whole story? And if not, if yes, how does that, uh, what does that mean for the question of Scottish imperialism? I think that Livingston's a, a very important figure in how imperialism was commemorated and remembered in Scotland, certainly in the, the twenty in the nineteenth and, and especially twentieth centuries. Um I used to work at the University of the West of Scotland, which has a campus in Blantyre, and there's still a Dr. David Livingston centre in Blantyre. He's still a, a remembered figure, certainly locally in Lanarkshire, I think. I think Livingston is interesting because he reminds us of the autonomous contribution of Scotland to British imperialism. Um, that you know, Livingston wasn't an Anglican. He was a he was a Protestant missionary of a particularly Scottish nature. And the Kirk in certain parts of the the, the British Empire had a very prominent and important role. I think what's maybe interesting about Livingston and is that as Scotland has become a more secular country, in many ways he's probably been forgotten. He's not. He doesn't enjoy the prominence that he would have done in the mid twentieth century, for instance, in the Scottish historical imagination. And I think that's partly connected with decolonisation, but probably actually more importantly connected with, with secularisation, the declining significance of the Church of Scotland in public life, which does roughly coincide with decolonisation in some ways. I suppose the other thing that is interesting, maybe there, is that the Church of Scotland did support. I think pretty sure to, in the you know the fifties and sixties and seventies came to a more progressive position on decolonisation and that that's quite interesting when we're thinking about colonialism and, and political shifts in Scotland as well. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I, I didn't know about the Blantyre, the 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 centre, the, the David Livingston Centre in Blantyre. Although I've been to the you know the museum there. I think also it's interesting that he's a very much a figure, um, and one of the reasons for his importance as a kind of symbolic figure of memory was his working class, his impeccable, you know, he worked, he was a mill boy, he really started as a, as a working, as a working class mill boy in Blantyre, worked his way up. And like Robbie Burns, he's, you know, he's, he becomes an icon of um, working class, uh, the ladder pets, as it's as known in Scott's, you know, mythology, social mythology, who, who works his way up from nowhere, as it were, and, and achieves the, his goal through hard work, self-application, in this case, Christian, you know, evangelical Christianity, and you know, and uh, medical. Uh, he's also a doctor. Let's not forget, he's not just a missionary. He's also a medical. And that's very important. Uh, and I think I agree with you. And I think what, as the increasing secularism of Scotland, as well as the whole post-colonial turn, has made him look 
slightly he, a very out of you know he's kind of very out of date it's hard to see where the where the mystique and the charisma lay um i had a colleague uh in glasgow uni um who was a david livingston scholar who edited the missionary travels uh and weirdly enough he was called justin livingston <laughs> although he was no relation of the the great man he was actually northern irish and he's gone back to he's now now as a lecturer in the department at queen's university belfast but justin organized a conference uh on livingston in uh in maloy which is uh um in blantyre in maloy which was the basically uh the which is the post-colonial state which is i believe the poorest state in southern africa which was based on the um you know the, the colony that livingston had founded and he was very interested to find that you know he was taking quite a post-colonial approach to Livingston, but amongst African uh, scholars in Malawi, he was seen as a hero. You know, he was seen as a, effective as a strong Presbyterian Church of Scotland. Malawi has been called a, ch a church, a Presbyterian Church of Scotland colony, um, and uh, or post-colony. And uh, there was a really, really strong, you know, resistance to quite a few posts from some quarters, not from all. Uh, to the notion of um, post-colonial critique of David Livingstone. So I think he's a fascinating figure um, in this whole uh, formula. Just going to say that devolved Scotland re-establishing links yeah. with Malawi might be a way that Livingstone remains significant. And that, that began under the, the Labour-led Scottish executives, but it continued under yeah. the, the SNP as well. I went to the National Museum of Scotland when I was younger and they had a video exhibit on Livingston and there was like a clip and there was this guy from Malawi saying we call ourselves African Scots. Mm. As I wanted to say, it's like it's quite interesting to see the memory of him within and outside of Scotland. Mm. It's a very interesting man, essentially. I just wanted to chip in there with that little anecdote. And I was interested to hear because, you know, working on the Belgian colonial case, it's often the sort of heroes that are sort of questioned now and people sort of often speak in terms of oh, there is nostalgia and there's forgetting about these uh, episodes in history. Um, but when hearing the Scottish case, I hear, you know, sort of the church being quite a pro progressive force in the second half of the 20th century, if I understood you correctly, Ewan. And then, of course, the sort of the, you know, different opinions from people in, in Africa. How would you, would you say, like, you know, when thinking about Scotland and empire, is nostalgia is forgetting is that a too easy term for these sort of things or do we do we need something else to sort of unpack how these legacies live on today i suppose i mean one other really important feature of scotland in the second half of the 20th century is the development of scottish nationalism mm -hmm. and you know that that's very significant into that context and when winnie ewing wins the hamilton by-election 1967 for the snp she declares that scotland will stand in next to Senegal as an independent country in the United Nations. And um, that doesn't mean that the SNP were in any way saying Scotland is straightforwardly a colony of England, but the sense was that new countries were being formed. And I think that that is quite important, the, the formation of you know modern Scottish nationalism. And I sense that the old imperial order was decaying and that Scotland was not going to benefit from being part of it anymore and it couldn't be part of it even if it wanted to. I think it's quite important as well there. So I suppose that, I would say that's really important to considering that context. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the question about the contemporary memory of, you know, the Presbyterian Church's involvement in the colonial world, I mean, I think that that's, I mean, I, I agree with you in that because we're largely a secular society and that the people who identify as Presbyterians are a very small populate part of the Scottish population now. And it's a very mixed, um, it, it's either, it's predominantly secular, but it's a very strong Catholic population. There's a strong Muslim population. 
there's a you know it's, it's a much more eclectic mix so i don't think those sorts of factors play the role they they did previously in, in, in the formation of a new na- a nationalist um identity in scotland I don't, I don't think that probably has played hugely important roles but it should remind us that Presbyterianism, uh, just like the Scottish uh, Roman law, law system and the Scottish uh, education system, were institutions that distinguished Scotland from England after the, the, Treaty, the Treaty of Union. And it's one of the ways, one of the, one of the ways, probably one of the most, most important ways in which the, the notion of a British synthetic synthesis never really worked, that the Union was never really uh, fully achieved. It was a project. There were acts of union to try to make it work. But somehow in the end, is what we're seeing now is it's coming apart very, 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 very quickly. It's fraying. Um, and it's fraying also from, you know, the point of view of England as well as from Scotland. It's not just a, a driven by Scottish nationalism. It's driven by other forms of British nationalism or English nationalism, I think it is, really, rather than British nationalism. Gordon Brown, remember, back in 2009, wanted us to all um, be British again. You know, he wanted to have a British day and create a museum of British history. And it was dropped because of the banking crisis. <laughs> there wasn't enough money for it. And there was very little enthusiasm because people had just stopped identifying as being British in that kind of way. But I think that's a big difference. I think, you know, half a cent, I think in the 19, when I was born in 1958, there was still quite a strong sense of Britishness. A lot of Scots, would have, my parents would have identified as British and Scottish. That's, that's actually very, very close linked to something I wanted to ask later on, actually, um, to do with, well, I, as someone who's done a lot of, lot of 18th century British history, a lot of imperial history, I, of course, know all about Linda Collie. And Collie's big, you know, that, that trinity of Britishness, which upheld it together, crown, Protestantism, even if it was different in Scotland as opposed to England and, you know, vice versa. And, of course, empire being those essential glues that bonded Britain together. I think most people who know a bit of British imperial history or just general British history from the past 200, 200 years are, are aware of that thesis. But um, from what you are both saying, would you both agree that almost the, the loss of empire has been this accelerating force in this divergence? I mean, I saw on your Twitter today you did that tweet about Glasgow and how it was in, over the past weekend we've seen um, the Southside protests against the deportation of those two men by the Home Office, whilst simultaneously seeing, um, you know, some. I'm, I'm not sure. If, I'm not. I've not been following it closely enough. The Rangers, pro, like, um, well, riots in George Square. I've been following it quite closely enough, but it's. Yeah. Would it be right. fair to say that you can almost see over the just the events of this weekend, kind of like the this more, sort of, imperially dependent, more aggressive, but now threatened, British Union's identity, and then this more kind of like, well, post-imperial Scottish nationalist conscious that's been emerging as those sort of ties of, religion, appreciation for the monarchy and empire have been fraying. Um, over the course of the 20th and 21st centuries. Something that makes me a bit sceptical of that story is that I think there's a really big interregnum, and I think that David Edgerton's assessment of British nationhood is actually quite important to think about there, that Britain only really became a modern nation-state in the way we tend to think about nation-states as, you know, having a, a large set, a large section of government intervention, the economy, an army, an education system. Like, that's a project and mass democratic enfranchisement, these are projects that take place over the 20th century and to some extent coincide actually with a decentering of the significance of imperialism and, and colonialism. And, you know, that moment of the 1940s and 50s that Nigel mentions as being a peak moment of British identities in Scotland, and I would agree with that. I'd say those identities are, yeah, the imperial bits are there, and we've discussed that, but actually... 
the welfare state um, and class conscious identities are quite important there as well. The fact that if you live in a, a mining village, for instance, the British state is actually there structuring the economy very directly in front of you and you might well work for it. You certainly know people who do is also really quite important. So I, I think it's important to bear that in mind. And the political divergences between Scotland and England that are now significant are ones that develop over, particularly over the 1980s. They, they arguably anticipate that with the 1970s. But I think it's it's quite important that we we have that in mind. I, I do think, you know, the Union, uh, the Empire was definitely very important for the rationale for the Union and for embedding it. And if we look at it, from a long-term point of view, we can certainly say that the dissolution of empire has challenged some of the foundations of union, but yeah. we could also argue that other bases for union, social democratic ones, were quite powerful and important for quite a long time. And Yeah, that's, there's, a, there's that nice nice essay by, by Neil Asherson, which has got a great title. It's When Was Britain? When Was Britain? And I think that is a, is a very pertinent yeah. question. Because uh, I think there are problems with uh, Linda Colley's massively influential book, uh, um, because she kind of accepts there was, you know, a British, a British nation, a British nation state, rather than a multinational state, uh, four nations multinational state. Which recent work, like you know, again by our colleague Andrew McKillop, for example, on British colonialism in India, shows that there's not a great deal of evidence, at least in the earlier period, where the East India Company, for example, never really describes its uh, employees as British. They're, they're Scottish, English, Irish, Welsh sometimes, but the, the British thing doesn't really come in until much later. So and I think there is a period when it's very close to being a a, a nation, you know, a national entity. But uh, I think, and, and I think, of course, the other thing that um, Linda Colley fails to really take on board is the whole issue of Ireland and the, the, the massive influence of Ireland and Irish nationalism in the development of British identity over the 19th and 20th century. Um, and the whole question of Catholicism. Uh, so, you know, important as that book was, I think there are all sorts of questions that it leaves uh, hanging. And those questions are very, very important in a West of Scotland context in particular, obviously. It's with all the strong Irish Catholic, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and maybe if I could, if I could maybe build on that, I think what I found interesting is the sort of, and, and maybe looking into Ewan's research uh, a bit on like, industry uh, and that sort of past being something that is now maybe remembered in a positive daylight as one of the sort of the founding, uh, the, the key elements of sort of Scottish identity, sort of that, that big industrial past, if I understood correctly, um, that, that distinction between the, 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 the positive elements between air brackets uh, and, and economy and industry as being Scottish. And maybe the more things people feel uncomfortable with, the unsavory elements, that being sort of, okay, that we can sort of label as British. Do you see that sort of that, that split? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And it is something I've thought about a, a few times recently. Like Polling shows that Scotland is the part of the UK where the British Empire is least popular. It's one of the few places where you know a majority of people don't think of it as positive. Um, and it's got the lowest sort of, favorability but one reason for that might be that it's actually quite easy to section off what counts as the british empire and what counts as scotland's contribution to the world um 
even though in reality those things are obviously very, very highly bundled together. It, you know, there's a long-standing story of Scotland as a country of traders and, and inventors. Uh, you know, even Star Trek had a, a Scottish engineer after all. And that that sort of identity, um, we invented the television, and we mined lots of coal, we built lots of ships, we built lots of locomotives. Never mind where they ended up. Um, is it's quite an easy story to tell. And, you know, it comes down to things like, well, where was, even in socially progressive stories like Robert Owen's mills in in New Lanark, which were seen as a sort of anticipation of later arguments for socialism and trade unionism, well, where was the cotton being picked that was was spun and and weaved in those mills? Like, there's there's really, I think that there's a danger of this becoming a, a simplistic story where we actually just have to, you know, about, you know, this bit was good and this bit was bad, whereas in reality it makes a lot more sense to think about the overarching context of imperialism and the construction of a, a world capitalist economy in which these activities took place. And there are also optimistic stories there about support for the abolitionist movement, for instance, or support for anti-colonial struggles later and, and I don't think they should be written out of history but I don't think they should be used to kind of whitewash the negative elements as well that's not a, a thoughtful or helpful way to appraise Scotland's role in the world in the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. Yeah and and maybe with the, the, the Catholic element as well in Ireland the sort of division between colonizer and colonized as sort of a set division and people who are colonized cannot be colonizers? Do you think that that sort of plays into that uh, story as well? That sort of trying to see things in dichotomies and that sort of, you know, we were colonized so we can be, you know, be, be colonizers? I think there is that. I think, and you know, the sense that people who were colonized in Ireland did, you know, it, it seems like a contradiction to suggest that they were ultimately in some ways net beneficiaries of Scotland's place in the world system because they organised collectively in their communities for fairer rents or better wages. But I think there's a way of assessing that that, that that doesn't boil down to saying, well, actually, you're just imperialist. It's about understanding the place that different social groupings had in a complicated global context. I think even more than Ireland, I'd actually say the Highlands has been really, really central to that story. And and to developing a sort of legitimation for the victimhood argument, which is often then nationalised and play, you know, and used to justify Scotland's wider position, even where that's thoroughly inappropriate, given the, the prominent role that, that Lowland Scots played in, in, in the clearing of the islands. Could I come in there? Um, yeah, fantastic, you win. Yeah, well, I think um, at, at this point, again, I'd like to, I'd like to, um, to, to mention my, my colleague, Andrew McKillop, and... Uh, um, the report on uh, land ownership, slavery land ownership in the Highlands, which I'm sure Ewan is very well aware of. And the report has been quite controversial. And it's shown that um, using the legacies of British slave ownership website and the information there, it showed that uh, nearly a half of the total land mass of the, of the West Highlands and Islands um, was purchased um, in the period, in the long 18th century, and up, I think up till 1939, actually, by slave beneficiaries of slave slavery, either directly through the capital from slave plantations or indirectly uh, in terms of the enormous 16 billion pound, uh, in modern terms, British government uh, payout 
um, to for emancipation, which of course didn't go to the slaves, it went to the slave owners. Um, and they show that um, uh, although mem many members of the traditional Gallic elite, you know, Cameron of Lochiel, the Dukes of Argyle, Macintosh of Borlem, etc., uh, had been involved uh, in slavery um, in the uh, and had uh, had plantations, and particularly in Jamaica, um, before the before 1800, uh, the it was the new elite. Uh, Divine calls them the new elite of landowners after about 1820, who uh, were the significant players. And, and I think for me, the most powerful, and I mean, he, they, the, the report acknowledges that it's not just a simple question of internal colonization. That, that, that's a rather simplistic way of looking at it, although there are aspects of truth in it. Um, it's basically about the ways in which, uh, you know, and they admit that Gales of all classes uh, benefited to some extent from colonialism, but mainly Gales from the ruling and gentry classes, that uh, um, more humbly born Gales tended to be treated like colonized people in Ireland. And indeed they were. My work on the Scottish tour in the period shows that increasingly by the 1810s and 20s and 30s, the Gales were being racialized. They were being likened, racialized as Irish through the uh, Gaelic language. Uh, and they were also being constantly compared to colonized peoples, to Native Americans, First Nationists, Afghan tribesmen, etc., etc. So there was that, that, there was clearly a language of colonization, whether or not it's an internal colonization or not. There is a perception and a discourse of colonization being used in what's happening in the Highlands. But for me, the most powerful um, message of that uh, of that report was to show that um, that uh, basically uh, the extraction-based estate economics uh, that were behind the Highland clearances developed flowed very very easily from the sorts of colonial mentalities of slavery plantations and colonial extraction. And there were the same people, basically, uh, who were doing both. Um, there was no respect for the environmental or sustainable traditions of small farming in the Gaelta. Um, there was an, an attempt to, to transform those areas, to modernize the Gaelta into a, a modern profit capitalist economy, one that constantly came up against problems. You know, and I'm, what fascinates me, and I've argued in my book, is one of the interesting things about the development of the Gaelta in this period is that it does represent a, a, a kind of moral, a message of the limits of growth, the limits of economic growth, where you just simply can't, you don't seem to be able to succeed. You try and try again, but growth just doesn't happen. And that's now a global issue with, with environmental, the environmental movement and the climate emergency and everything like that. So I think actually looking at the Highlands in this respect becomes very important for thinking about a, a much larger global predicament that we're in at the moment. I think we've covered a lot of very good stuff there. Uh, we're currently got around five minutes of recording left, and we've got loads of amazing content so far, but I want to just ask one last question and bring us out of the, the, the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries and into the present. Because, um, well, basically what spurred me on to like, come up with this, this idea for a podcast to begin with, I've been a lot of discussion about the modern union and the notion of government by consent. So... In light of the recent Holyrood election with, I think it's an 11-seat majority for pro-independence parties when you include the Greens, I can't remember the exact arithmetic. Um, but is there an argument now to say that whilst the union historically has never been, you know, you were saying when was Britain achieved, all that kind of things, all these kind of things. Is there an argument to say now that with Holyrood and Westminster, the, the loggerheads they've been at for the past 10 years, even more so now that Westminster is continuing to say, you know, even after a renewed sort of, well, democratic mandate for the nationalist parties. Are there some questions about the nature of the union in regards to 
um, colonial issues, imperial issues, a lack of government by consent. What are your what are your thoughts on that? Just for us to finish it on. Well, I suppose what I what I would say is that I think you can argue about the democratic deficit in Scotland being treated in an undemocratic way without claiming that Scotland is a colony. And I think that, that that's a perfectly legitimate position and one that increasingly seems to be the case. And I, I think Nigel obviously mentioned that the Union was not welcomed across Scotland in 1707 and there were popular disturbances, but I think we're in a very distinctive potentially time period now where the Union might not have broad assent in Scottish society and not have broad assent in the institutions of civil society that, that govern Scotland. Um, that is a very that is very distinctive territory and it's very different territory to the territory we were in across most of the the period that that we've been discussing. And I think that obviously raises severe questions about the legitimacy of the union. I think it's actually interesting though that this discussion is unfolding about the Union and, and democracy for Scotland in a context where I think there's an increasing public awareness of, of Scotland's role in colonisation in the past and actually particularly in the aftermath of the Black Lives Matter protest last year we saw an increasingly public discussion about the legacy of slavery and colonialism so there's probably also a renewed sensitivity actually about using those sorts of analogies regarding Scotland's situation, which I think is a good thing. I think that you can make a democratic argument, an argument against the treatment of um, the democratic deficit where it doesn't have to rest on claims to colonisation that I don't think stand up in terms of traditional economic and political assessments that that would require. Yeah, I think if I could add to that, because... I from from what happened in in current affairs after during the um, during the leaders debate, someone called the leaders of the unionist party imperialists, you know, in this whole question of will there be a second referendum? And you speak of, you know, a sort of uh, a democratic deficit, but other people are really sort of using that imperial metaphor to sort of, you know, Throw, 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 add, add fuel to the fire. Uh, do you, yeah, just to sort of. Uh, can I come in there? I think that's a generational thing. I, mean, I think all the evidence shows that the, the supporters of the union are much older, tend to be my age and older. Uh, I'm not one of them, but that, that, that's the demographic. Whereas the, the generation of my daughters are strongly in favor of independence. And I think uh, evoking um, imperial types of rhetoric to defend the union uh, are just not going to work. They're just not going to cut any ice. They're going to create a increase the sense of what Ewan was describing as the democratic deficit and the sense that there's no that there's no allowance for the Scottish people's voice to be heard. Um, and I think the other thing that's important is that Scotland is a multicultural society like like England, like other most other European countries. And here in Kelvin, we elected um, the first uh, Muslim woman MSP in the shape of Kokab Stewart to Holyrood um, a, couple, a few weeks ago, which is a great moment, uh, but it's very late in coming. You know, the first black woman MSP in uh, 2021. It's, 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 it's better late than ever, but it, and there, there was, there's a, it's a much more devolved, it's easily the most devolved parliament we've had, but there's still a lot of work to do. And I know that, relatively speaking, the BME population of Scotland is much smaller than England's, 
uh, but growing in importance and in influence, and, uh, and rightly so. And it makes a huge contribution to Scottish uh, society, to the economy and to Scottish civil society. And, and I, for me, for Scotland to be a, to be a modern uh, European nation is to take full, to, t to become aware of that, to take, take it responsibility for its colonial past, um, which has constituted the, its social fabric in the present. Um, I think Brexit, of course, is the big shift from 2014. I think uh, I watched John Curtis. I don't know if you watched John Curtis's talk the other other evening, uh, Ewan, um, at the, the Ferguson lecture, but he was basically showing that the support for uh, Indy 2 was really very strongly uh, had been increased by the whole Brexit uh, situation, and that didn't look like it was going to change anytime soon. Um, obviously, the, the, the government, Boris Johnson, is going to push very hard to try and uh, you know win the hearts and minds, this love campaign that he's what's he, that's a love in. But I don't think it hasn't worked in the past. I'm skeptical of seeing it working. <laughs> That's right. But, you know, roll it on. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens. I think both, I actually yeah. think the SP have also been really um, slow in developing pr pr proposals for independence. It's, it's underdeveloped. They haven't thought, I know they were waiting to, for the election, but they've got to start working really hard to persuade people because there are questions like the hard border, there's questions of the economy. There's questions about um, the things like Ewan's wonderful paper on the, the faltering green yeah. uh, uh, green revolution in Scotland that need to be addressed. Uh, the, the, the use of a much a much more state interventionist economic policy uh, is required. I think the green uh, the Greens having eleven is it eleven they've got eleven MSPs is going to support that. But the SNP is going to have to work very hard. I don't I don't see it as a foregone conclusion. I don't see that. I, th I think in the end there will be independence, but it's going to be a battle. I mean, what, one thing I would add to the, the green stuff is I think in terms of the history that we've been talking about, it's important that we consider that, you know, we like to boast mm. that the steam engine was invented in Scotland, that mm. Scotland played a leading role in the making of a carbon economy, carbon world economy and has become very wealthy through that. And Andreas Munn's um, book, Fossil Capital, actually rests on debates that took place in the west of Scotland about the use of water power versus steam power and the eventual adaptation of steam power. So I... I think aside from the importance of green energy and, and how and you know where that green energy is located and how it's manufactured uh, for social justice, there's also really quite important questions about Scotland's world role from that as well. Yeah, if if I could quickly a final thought when you were maybe just a final thought when you were speaking about the uh, the new election and and the sort of the the, the population diversity. Um, in Scotland, in, in England. And I was just curious to see how that will contribute to that debate on Scotland, empire and nationalism when we add in more voices from various backgrounds. And, you know, how will that influence the debate? One, one thing I find quite interesting on that front, actually, because this is something I did a little bit of reading on, but it's the case that BME people in England, on the whole, identify as British rather than English. And then when you go to Scotland, BME people in Scotland on the whole, <laughs> there's a much higher percentage that, that identify as Scottish rather than British. Um, it's still slightly less so than the rest of the population, but I thought that's quite an interesting dynamic to bear in mind when thinking about um, what like Scotland's growing BME population means for independence, national identity. Well, I've, I mean, to answer that, I haven't read Ewan's blog, which which I, oh, you're, 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 uh, you mentioned at the beginning, but if you look at what happened on Thursday in Pollock Shields, you know, you're seeing a, a predominantly youthful, a uh, uh, crowd of people, protesters, uh, objecting to a Home Office, um, you know, forcible, um, forcing forced immigration arrests of, of people, and uh, there's a mass and the and the and the pro-Palestine demonstration on Saturday in George Square um, shows that there's a there's an enormous 
groundswell of popular support for these issues. That are, um, and these are not these are not issues which the Tory government in Westminster are going to are going to win. I mean, I think it's, it's also important to say that the discussion on Scotland and slavery, for instance, has been propelled by people from the BME community taking that forward and making it a subject. Um, Graham Campbell's work with the Coalition for Racial Equality, for instance, has been important in making this part of the political discussion. So I think you're right to highlight that as a, an important factor, which is hopefully encouraging Scotland to have a, a more mature discussion on, on these subjects. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of the Unsettling Knowledge podcast. Be sure to check out the information box for links to Ewan and Nigel's upcoming projects and for this week's reading list and food for thought. And an extra special thank you to Ewan and Nigel for speaking with us today, as well as Rachel Gillett and Melina Yalanki, who have been working away in production to help create this episode. And of course, last but not least, a big, big thanks to our lovely co-host, Ava. And keep an eye on our social media, at decolgroupuu on Twitter and at the underscore decolonization underscore group on Instagram for more information on our next episode. It features Robin Mitchell and Stephen Knowlton, and we discuss how archives to this day show legacies of empire in contemporary European society. My name is Eden Simpson. My name is Eva Skalbruck, and this was Unsettling Knowledge, Scotland and Empire.